Welcome to the Caspian Podcast, the podcast of the Caspian Post with me, Mark Elliott. Hello again and welcome to the Caspian Podcast with me, Mark Elliott. Today, John Spencer is with us. He's the Chair of Urban Warfare at the MWI at West Point, which is the US's top military academy. Uh, he did an article on the 2020 Battle of Shusha, which was widely acclaimed for unpicking the details of, the, of that battle, which was the main and final battle of the, uh, the Karabakh War of 2020. We'll get to that in a moment. But first of all, welcome, John. And uh, can you just tell us why uh, the Modern War Institute might be interested in Karabakh in the first place? Well, thank you, Mark. Thanks for having me. It's, it's an honor to be on the show. Uh, so the Modern War Institute, we study all modern war and of course, we were doing a lot on the Nagarno-Karabakh, like a lot of people was were doing at the time and still are. Um, you know, I specialize in urban operations, urban warfare. Um, so we were actually planning on, on making a trip during the summer because in the summers, we go all around the mm-hmm. world and look at modern combat. We were looking at going into Nagarno-Karabakh, really Azerbaijan and Armenia to discuss the battle. So I was then starting to research and, and looking for anything urban and to my surprise, there wasn't a lot out there on the one battle, which was what we call the decisive battle. It determined the war. It drove to a political outcome and there was little on it. So then I was immediately interested in, I just dug as deep as I could on what happened in Susha. Okay. So we'll get to that just in a second. So, but for people who aren't aware, I, I gather that from uh, the, the point of view of people uh, in your shoes who are interested in the techniques of warfare, that Karabakh was a bit of a game changer. Could you, you know, from, from the point of view of tactics and things uh, and, and indeed equipment, uh, what was different about that war than we may have seen in other conflicts? So some of the differences in what really gained a lot of international, especially military strategic studies scholars was the use of advanced technologies, mainly by Azerbaijan, such as the autonomous drones, what we call loitering drones. There's lots of names for them, but the, the heavy use of those advanced technologies in this war gained international attention because of how effective it was against kind of an older mindset military that was Armenian backed. So for military scholars, it was really this highly technologically advanced military who had invested a lot in its modernization against a defending enemy, which usually means that they had the advantage, but how they were just basically, you know, really set back at it because they didn't have a an answer to all these advanced technologies, which everybody in the world is concerned about how it will change what we call the character of warfare. Mm. And a lot of people were looking at this going, oh my wow, this is literally, is it a prediction of the future? And so, I mean, for the rest of the world, uh, who would you say was most worried by that? And is, is this, you know, for, for the major powers, worried that a smaller power might be able to take them on? Um, the, by the way, the loitering drones, are you saying these are ones that just sort of sit there and, and, and bide their time? Yeah, so they can basically get up in the air and just circle. So they don't just, you know, stop, they're not in one spot like a balloon, but they're just loitering, meaning they're hovering around an area for endless hours, things that you can't do with a manned aircraft. Uh, that's what these you know, drones and what mm. we call the loitering munitions. So a loitering munition is really a drone with a, with a weapon on it. So it's not right. only this thing that can just stay above you and what we call the constant seeing eye, which we've had for a while, but then we eventually started weaponizing them. So not only can this thing hover uh, for days above a, a you know, long-term, but they can also then identify a target and strike it. 
So right. and, and and so so the use of those is we haven't had those weaponized drones in a major combat before. Is that what we're understanding? Not exactly. So you know, especially the TB two. So that's the one that the, this Turkish made a drone that is high altitude, uh, can loiter, but can also identify targets and strike. We've seen them before, right? We've seen them in the Syrian war, uh, Libya, and in some aspects in Eastern Ukraine. But like we, we, we just mentioned, we've never seen them this dominant. Um, there's reasons for that, uh, it, which causes all armies around the world to really gain attention. If you don't have uh, electronic warfare, air defense capabilities, basically ways to contest the airspace above you, you're just a sitting duck on a modern battlefield. And that's what these taught us. So we hadn't, we'd seen these drones before, but we had not seen them be this effective. Gotcha. Okay. So that, that's the main game changer. In terms of tactics, was the way in which these things used um, in some way clever, or was it purely just a matter of whoever had had the advantage of the air and these drones was almost bound to win? Yeah. So, you know, it's multiple unfortunate events, right? If you're the, if you're the defender, um, it was not only the clever use. So we did see some clever use of um, using different types of systems. Like let's say you have a cell phone on you on the battlefield, which you shouldn't have as a soldier, Um, you know, in a modern battlefield, if it emits a signal, uh, electronic signal, whether it's a GPS, you know, a, a, a type of map or just your cell phone and you're talking to your family at home, it is giving a single out so we did see advanced uses of that signal then being targeted with a lethal strike capability. Wow. Uh, so that kind of woke people up. But really what it is, is that if, if you don't have electronic warfare, basically ways to jam that signals, those type of signals from going out, uh, if you don't have an air defense artillery strike capability to that, that can hit drones, which, you know, they fly lower, they're a lot smaller, um, if you don't have those capabilities today, um, you're just, you're, and to include great powers um, that really didn't think about having it that low, you know, we all, everybody has some type of capabilities to combat some of this, but really seeing it used at that scale and what happens on the ground if you don't have it. And what, unfortunately what we saw is that anything that is visible could be killed um, and, and complete air supremacy meaning the, the attacker had complete control of the airspace. No, no basically, no, no ability to deny what's above you. It, it, we saw what happens if that in the future, if you, if you allow that to happen and you know, all militaries around the world kind of woke up and go, okay, Actually, we need yeah. to make sure, yeah. Well, that's, okay, so now I gather that's the, the overall for the, for, the, for the whole conflict, that is something that was very important. But then I think what you're telling us is that Shusha was a little bit different in that in Shusha, it still was very important, the actual men on the ground. And, and the way that they got there sounds incredibly dramatic. Could you talk us through a little bit how this happened? Because it, it seems like um, something worthy of a movie. I, I agree. Now, I will say, you know, I, I do all open, what we call un, open source, unclassified. So I'm trying to pieced together the picture of what was happening based on news reporting and in this conflict unlike others probably as heavily you know posted videos on tiktok twitter things like that to piece together the story from what we can gather from all that and what me and my co-author did uh the attack on susha was more conventional 
almost old school fighting than you than everybody was trying to say about the overall war, right? This highly technologically advanced war, it's drone warfare or the tank was dead. So it's not no, no longer applicable. What we saw in Susha, which is this, everybody else, like you said, your, your audience will know better than me. So the city that sits on a hill, it should have been very hard to attack and to take. But as the attackers, they used unconventional ways to break up the defense. And one of the biggest stories, and I think what you commented about is this story, what we believe happened. And we have video showing that it, that it happened that an unknown number about, we estimate about 400 Azerbaijan special forces, highly trained, um, moved by foot um, with little amount of food, little amount of water and scaled cliffs. You know, and sometimes we use cliffs in a, in a variation of, but they scaled the terrain around Susha and, and broke up into little groups and surrounded the city without anybody knowing. And, and you're right, that, that's an amazing use of special operations um, to attack a city, which in history is something that's very hard to do, costs you a lot of casualties. In this operation, we saw an Azerbaijan plan that was well advanced than anybody was thinking. And it wasn't the high technology. It was these soldiers climbing cliffs, climbing through mountains on, on little water and setting up little attack sites all around the city that then cause an opening to actually enter the city. Now, what's intriguing to me, and again, I hadn't quite realized this until I read your article, but in 1992, when it was exactly the mirror, mirror image, because in those days, Shusha um, was a very much a majority Azerbaijani city, and it was the Armenians attacking. Now, if I've got it right, they did something similar, and yet they yeah. didn't think to defend against it. Do you have any theories about that? And have I, have I got that right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. So when I did the research into the basically this the same situation in 1992, where the Azerbaijans had control of Shusha and the Armenians attacked, I don't know. So I need to walk the ground to see which side because you're know, surrounded by cliffs on basically three sides or, or most sides, depending on where. But the, yeah, the exact same scenario. They in, infiltrated what we call basically got into the area without anybody knowing by scaling these cliffs that nobody guarded. So the the we don't know why, why would, if you're defending a city, right. And you had to get, you can't make assumptions about what's going on inside of the city. So they are under a heavy artillery attack early mm -hmm. on, but why would you leave these cliffs that had been you yourselves, your, your formation? And it, it may get to, you know, militaries not learning lessons of their own past, which is a problem across the world. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah. So Armenians have scaled cliffs to, to break into Susha and then fast forward to 2020 it, 21 and they did it again and do we i mean i suppose that as you say we we don't have a great deal of, of finite information on it so do we think it's the same the exact same cliffs or as you say there are quite a i mean the whole the whole city is rather ringed with cliffs i mean you, you um dashalta which i know there was a battle before um shusha is directly beneath well it looks like cliffs and there's cliffs under the city and then it has this slope that comes down it's a sort of a from what i can tell from the uh, google earth at least it looks like it's it's a sort of um one of those domed uh, convex slopes and i know well that's what got um uh, napoleon at waterloo a convex hill so it's i mean they they all sneaked up that so i mean i, I wonder whether that 
could do it, but it, it still seems incredible. Do we know where they came up and, and do we know how many different groups of these attackers there were this time? Um, so on this most latest one, I can't, so I've actually gotten myself, not in trouble, but I've gotten regional <laughs> experts saying there's no way they came up that cliffs. Uh, or, and, you know, there's different pictures like New York Times posted a picture like it, it could never be those cliffs. And, and ideally you'd think basically, you know, from 1992, they were attacking from the, you know, from the capital down um, towards, so basically from the north to the south. In this situation, though, we have reports of Azerbaijan special forces on all three sides. So potentially not in the north. I, I don't think they came from Deshante, like, as you're talking about, because we, we have we, we know when that battle happened. So I I'd love to be to walk the ground and I, I, to go to Susha and, and see it firsthand. I think they came in from basically on the west side. Okay. Uh, of the city uh, and scaled cliffs on that side. But like you said, this was a, uh, something that a movie should be made about not only how they came up, but how they got there without being discovered. Right. So especially with these drones and everything, how do you get large formations? So we think that it was around 400, right. I'll estimate 200 to 400, still a lot of people to infiltrate and not be seen, which is a very, you know, as a, former 25 year infantryman, rangers, special operations, very hard to do. So th that, that deserves a much more, uh, basically storytelling about it. And presumably they would have had to be climbing these cliffs, um, with their weapons and with everything they needed to, to attack. Now, presumably at the same time that this has happened, was there some sort of diversionary maneuver? Because uh, I think in 1992, um, the Azerbaijanis were sort of drawn out of the city to fight in, in villages nearby, reducing the, um, uh, the, the defending force. Has something, is, do we know? And, and was there something like that happening? Yeah, so th th there's definitely a lot going on. Is why we really can't criticize heavily on the defenders. Like, how did you let this happen? Because there was you know, artillery strikes happening nonstop. There was the aerial bomb, you know, basically these drones that could see you. Uh, so there was the artillery was started days before what we think the special forces were starting to infiltrate. Uh, there was a major, basically, campaign along the Lanchin Corridor, which most people know about more than I. And then the yes, moving... that's the bit that's the bit that links uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan. Um, it's the sort of the, the main lifeline between um, between the uh, the, the Nagorno-Karabakh Armenians and their Armenian supporters. Absolutely. So there was a battles. There are multiple battles, basically, most of the ambushes happening along that corridor, um, basically because it, it if you encircle a city, it's almost siege warfare. You want to just close it off so nobody can ever support it. Um, and that's what we saw happening as, and it's, it's like you said, you'd make a move as these people are scaling cliffs with giant rucksacks on their back with the anti-tank mortars, things like that. There's this fight happening on the outsides of the city in the Lansing corridor. Like you said, moving towards Deshanti, all of that's overwhelming the people inside the city on what's going on. Um, there's fighting everywhere. And that's what you want to do to your enemy. You just want them to think that you're everywhere with these different types of operations. And what do we, what do you estimate was the defending force? I mean, how many men and what, how, how heavily armed, what, what, what were the attackers up against? Yeah. So, the, so we believe it was about 2000 defenders based on open source. I'd love wow. to find, you know, talk to, um, the defenders, you know, basically how much of that was volunteers, how many, how much of that was a pre-prepared defense. We know they had 
um, tanks, armored personnel carriers, uh, mortars, artillery, uh, multiple launch rockets. They had heavy equipment in there to defend the terrain. Um, but you, and I think you might have saw in the article something I found fascinating, and you can see it from the videos, is that all that advanced drone warfare, about the time when the major battle of Susha happens, fog rolls in. And these, <laughs> yeah, these advanced technologies can't see through, they can see through fog, but they are really reduced in their capability. So that actually gave the defenders a big advantage and that's when you see you know tank on tank or uh, light infantry against the conventional forces happening but we think it's about 2,000 defenders um, how much of that was you know volunteers conscripts or people that knew the city and had a defensive plan as a military tactician that's the stuff I would love to be able to know gotcha yeah and that that wow. I'm sure we'll we'll learn over time uh, are you saying that there's there's the 400 so we've got the 400 who've broken into groups who've got yeah. into the city is there at the same time a, a massed attack coming from one or other direction absolutely so you had to take Deshanti in order to get to that main road, which most people know, there's only one main road that runs into Susha. So if you're going to bring in conventional forces, so you know tanks, uh, infantry, artillery even, you have to take these outlying cities. So we saw that main fight for Deshati happen at, you know, at the beginning of November, really at the end of October. At the same time, these special forces are moving around to really, I think the main purpose of them was one, to cut off the city, right? So they, they put ambushes and there's, a, there's videos, unfortunately, of this. You can see them in ambushes around Susha on mm -hmm. the roads leading in, but also to, to confuse the defenders, right? So if you started attacking them from all different directions that they didn't even think were possible because of their cliffs, as that main body, those conventional forces are moving on to Deshanti, take Deshanti, and then start moving up the main road now that it's clear, it's almost like... I'm not saying all hope is lost, but once mm. you cut a city off um, now, the question is, is were they prepared for that, that level of an attack or they had, they already lost enough momentum enough, uh, you know, outside of Shusha, right? So they're fighting a battle for their lives outside of Shusha. Had they had already lost so much that what was left in Susha was really just a, a, le a left behind force. Mm. See what you mean. Um, and, now the other, so so to bring this all together, it, it seems like that battle, you know, was such a blow that it ended the war. Do we think that now? Obviously, the 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 geography is important, as you say. Shusha sits on a hill overlooking the capital of what had been the the breakaway unrecognized republic of of Nagorno Karabakh, um, but it was only about ten kilometers away, and it. If, if Shusha hadn't been so close to the capital, hadn't been so dominant in terms of its strategic position, do you think this would not have been quite as significant as it turned out to be? I do. So not only was it the, so what I, you know, I study urban warfare. So not only was Susha on this critical piece of terrain um, and so close to the capital, it, it was also the, the gateway to the capital. Whoever owns that piece of terrain owns the capital city because it's you basically controlling all lines of lines of supply to, to get into it um if it was not on that strategic piece of terrain because uh, you even if it, was, it would have been a hilltop you go back to like ancient warfare if you if you were to control that hilltop and there wasn't a city there it was still going to be decisive because once you get into susha you can and this is what happened in 1992 really why why they had to attack susha in 1992 because Azerbaijan was launching artillery into 
the capital city from Susha so because it's just a piece of decisive terrain. Yes, I agree. Mm. If it if Susha would have been farther to the east and not on a critical piece of ground like it was, mm. but with it being 10 kilometers, they were if they had not come to the what we call the political table, if Armenia had not come to the political table and just allowed this to continue for a couple more days, I personally believe that the capital would have fell. Yeah, it, it did look it did look like yeah. somewhat hopeless from that point on, and as you say, they'd have cut the the the, um, the communications largely. So just to just to, to finish it up, if if I mean heaven forbid, I, I do hope that we'll have peace ahead and that we can find a way that the, the peoples can finally put all this behind them and, and work together. But if Armenia was to want to retake it, do you think with all the lessons learned this time round? That a, th- a third time would be impossible, or could you see a way in which that could still happen um, if if they tried again, if if they were lax enough to allow it? I I absolutely think it could happen again, um, and I think there's some lessons from both these 1992 battle and this most recent that that I would incorporate into both my plan of attack and my plan of defense. So the defenders better have closed these, what we almost call failure of imagination gaps. I think it could happen again. Um, you know, it, it would take a lot more advancements in, in a force than I think that was used this time, just because the element of surprise was there. I think it, it, it is in the way it's located. I think that, that it could happen again, um, you know, combined surprise and audacity. And I think it, it could be taken. Mm. Well, John, thanks so much. I know it's a it's a very niche thing here, but I know our, our audience are extremely interested in Shusha. Shusha, um, for Azerbaijan, is particularly the cultural capital of of their nation, and for Azerba- for Armenians too, a very important place. So, um, as I say, I I hope that we won't have to talk about war in the future, and we will be able to talk about peace. But but thank you very much. I, I gather you've got a, a book coming up about connected soldiers. I rather worry for connected soldiers if 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 their phones are going to give them away but um but i would encourage people to to um read your article and i'll I'll put links up on the on the website uh, so that they can do that good luck with your book and thanks so much for joining us uh you've been listening to the caspian podcast with me mark Hillett, and uh, thank you for coming john thank you